Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. If, you have a, if you're in university or you have a kid at university or a grandchild at university or a friend or whomever, uh, you may be thinking that they are going and getting the widest ranging, well-rounded education with all different points of view offered. And they might be. But there is a new bit of research out, which is at least uh, raising some doubts about that. The title of it is The Viewpoint Diversity Crisis at Canadian Universities, Political Homogeneity, Self-Censorship, and Threats to Academic Freedom. Let me read you one paragraph from the beginning of this one. The study, based on a survey of professors and members of the public, reveals that Canadian universities are political monoliths whose lack of viewpoint diversity contributes to serious problems on campus. Professors, especially the 9% of conservative professors whose views differ from the overwhelmingly dominant left-leaning views held by 88% of professors, are increasingly self-censoring for fear of reprisal. It is a, um, it, it's a very interesting study that probably says what a bunch of people were thinking already, but puts actual numbers and, and real research to this. Dr. Christopher Dummett is a professor of Canadian history at Trent University. He joins us now. Uh, thank you for the time today. I really appreciate this. Uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, by the way, when I introduce uh, one of the, the, the authors, one of the co-authors, um, I think the lead author of this study, this, look, when you bring this up to not necessarily members of the public, when this is brought up to people who work within the Canadian university system, does anybody say, no, your research has got to be totally off. I don't buy that at all. Or do they all just sort of nod and say, that seems about right. Uh, I think it depends on who you speak to. So I, I do still face uh, a, a lot of pushback on, on, on this kind of research, even though it's, it's pretty, pretty straightforward research. But I've got a lot of pushback from people who want to want to say that, they're, that, that we're off base and that this is uh, um, just a kind of talking point for conservatives. And I you know that, that was one of the reasons we wanted to do this study. There had been all this research in the U.S. and then the U.K. that had shown these numbers that Universities that are always kind of you know vaguely open-minded liberal institutions that have been getting you know a, a lot more skewed and and I thought that was what was going on in Canada and you know I'd, I'd written about that but I said you know let's let's actually do a study and find that out and of course we found out that um, what's actually happening in Canadian universities is very similar to what's happening in the U.S. and the U.K. and, and, and elsewhere and it's, it's leading to what we what we call a kind of a real crisis of viewpoint diversity a lack of of divergent viewpoints yeah. So how do we determine, I mean, are you asking people who did you vote for in the election or are you asking them, are you left-leaning or right-leaning? And if it's the second one, how do we identify even what that definition means in the current climate? Yeah, I mean, and, and we asked both of those, two different kinds of questions. We asked who do they vote for in the last uh, 2021 federal election? And then we also asked how, how they define themselves on the spectrum of either very left, uh, somewhat left, somewhat right or, or very right. And we really did it that way because we wanted to get a sense that, you know, the Liberal Party in particular is a, has, has been, over time, sometimes a centrist political party. And we thought, well, what did, how do professors who vote for the Liberal Party, where do they see themselves? And what we saw is that, over, you know, a, a lot of professors vote for the Liberal Party, but over uh, 90, so I forget the exact percentage, in, 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 you know, very few uh, uh, conservatives uh, w w would vote for uh, the, the Liberal Party. And it, it, so it made it clear that, that, uh, amongst professors, you know, it, it, whether you go by self-definition or who they vote for, it's, it's just an overwhelming majority of people identify as being on the left and vote for parties that you know they see as being on the left. So if you've asked people to identify themselves and they've said they vote for p 
people on the left or parties on the left, or they identify as being on the left. How is anyone then taking issue with your numbers and saying you're not being accurate, or this is a talking point for the right? Uh, I, I, you know, listen, people can convince themselves of a lot of confirmation bias. To be honest, I think one of the problems we've had is that amongst, you know, maybe when you're not faced on a regular basis with intelligent, thoughtful people who come from different perspectives, uh, I think, you know, even asking the kinds of questions we did when we did this research seems just, just, just too, too, too far out, too far out, out of a left field or right field. That it was just seemed that this is the kind of thing that so the, the whole bunch of motives would be, uh, you know, provided to us that we were trying to try. Right, it can only be malicious for a certain That's purpose right. if you ask this question. And, and, and but really, our, our, you know, the main impetus to do this was that uh, my co-author and I are, are really concerned about universities. We're big supporters of universities. We both work in universities, and we're big believers in. Um, uh, the place of universities as as kind of a place of seeking for truth, and we're, we're worried that the, the 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 lack of viewpoint diversity is adding to um, the crisis in trust in in our institutions, our universities in particular. That's that we're seeing in a whole bunch of a, a whole bunch of other environments as well. Why should that be a worry though? Let, I mean, if I, if I'm a student and I go to university and I may be left leaning, uh, and I have left leaning professors. Why is that a problem? Or if I'm a right-leaning student and I have left-leaning professors, why is that a problem? But you know, you only know you only really know your own opinion if you've if you've understood uh, what the most intelligent, thoughtful, and reasoned uh, opponent would would say about that. And if you've listened to that uh, opposite viewpoint, or maybe many opposite viewpoints, and thought, okay, I I agree with this, but here's where I think they're wrong. That's when you yourself can be convinced that 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 what you know is 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 accurate. Um, so universities really need to be places where we have those, you know, incredibly uh, thoughtful and di- and diverse uh, kind of kinds of conversations. And what our study found was that, in fact, um, on a whole bunch of you know, often the most controversial topics in society right now, that professors are self-censoring. Um, they're self-censoring in what they teach and what they research to avoid topics that they they think will get them into p- p- political hot waters. And this is happening well, well, a- across the board. That last part, okay, I can understand a, a professor self-censoring what they say because I can just avoid saying something that's going to get me into a world of trouble. But in what they research, are we having science and other research not being done because the outcome could be uncomfortable? Yeah, I mean, one of the areas that came up the most was about amongst um, actually feminist feminist scholars uh, who are, are kind of, you know, what you call them gender-critical feminist scholars who do differ from... Um, uh, 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 those who are, are, you know, more committed to kind of, uh, kind of s- certain ideas about uh, that the the, the, the the gender doesn't have a sexual basis, and we had a bunch of uh, comments from people saying that they had just sort of switched out of that research or and teaching because it just wasn't, you know, uh, possible to do that work anymore. Or what? They feared for the, it was it was imprecise. Uh, and they feared that they would be uh, uh, attacked by colleagues, that they would be um, attacked by maybe by students, by online mobs. We had you know there, there have been cases in Canada where people have been kind of t- t- taken out of administrative minister positions. There was a famous case, of course, in, in the UK that this year where a, a woman, because of kind of pressure uh, at the University of Sussex, she had to resign kind of because it just didn't, it wasn't safe for her at the university anymore. There was a kind of constant campaigning. And I think most people don't want their lives turned upside down because of the the very rare possibility that that, that might happen. And and you know I think at a whole bunch of levels those 
those high-profile cases are they're sort of the tip of the iceberg, and, and you get underneath those a lot of more lower-level kind of so, social ostracism, professional discrimination that can happen. Uh, okay, and, so and it, most people don't want that in their lives. Because yeah, no doubt. Um, because we're short on time, and I wish we had a lot more. Um, if if we were going to assume, and for the sake of the argument, we're going to assume that this was a problem that we need to somehow try and fix to balance this out a little bit more. How do you possibly do that? Because I don't believe that with the human rights, whatever, you could put something in writing asking for a history professor who leans right or who believes in conservative values. I don't know how, how in the world do you possibly undo this or balance it out? Yeah, no, and I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't advocate that. I think, I think it, it requires uh, action at the kind of provincial and national level to make academic freedom kind of to really uh, in, embed that in the working of, of universities. Right now, it's there in some ways around, around co- contracts, but you need to have, as, as Quebec has done and as, as the UK has done, an Academic Freedom Act, which insists and, and, and puts an onus on universities to protect academic freedom. And then, and then I think you, you can have these things worked out uh, on a case-by-case basis. It is a really uh, fascinating discussion. As I say, I wish we did have an awful lot more time. However, uh, if you're interested in this and you want to read this study, it's at the you can see it at the McDonald Laurier McDonald You can find it there. Um, you can search viewpoint diversity crisis. That'll bring it up on Google. Uh, you can Google Christopher Dummett D U M M I T T. You'll find it there under him, under things there. Uh, it, it is well worth a read. Whether you agree or disagree, it is absolutely worth a read. And that's kind of what we're talking about, I guess. Give it a read and have a different point of view. Uh, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Happy to do it. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let us bring in Bill Briou. He's a guy we love to talk to about things TV and entertainment. And otherwise, he's got, he has a terrific website, briou.tv. Uh, his podcast, you can find it on there. We talked last time I was here about his uh, podcast from the vault with Michael Landon that I actually had a, my, uh, Bill, I had a bunch of people call up right afterwards and go, tell me again how I found that because I want to find that again. So uh, Briou, dot TV. you can go there, and, but let's get that business out of the way because I did. I had a ton of people asking me about that. So obviously you, you know, you found something people really still love. Well, I, I know I sure do. I mean, anyone who's, who, uh, you know, um, remembers Michael Landon and little, you know, all the shows he was on going right back to Bonanza. So I, I was very fortunate to have that interview many years ago, and uh, I'm glad people are enjoying it. Well, and if we're going to be talking about Michael Landon and that era, uh, it, it struck me as unbelievable. And again, uh, this happens more often than I like to think these days that, I hear about some anniversary and I think that cannot be because that says something about me as well. Uh, MASH, 50 years that MASH went on the air, celebrated this week. That seems unbelievable, but it also seems, you know, we hear a lot of people use hyperbole and end of an era. And it really does seem like we will never, ever, ever, ever see another show like MASH, at least with the ratings that it was able to draw. Well, that's true. That that was uh, the high point for the network TV era. The finale of MASH um, outdrew, I mean, it was over 100 million, I believe. It was just a, an enormous number. And um, it was a two and a half hour finale. Uh, having said that, I'm one of the, uh, this was back in 1983. So, you know, the, there was no streaming services. There was HBO, but there weren't a lot of, uh, you know, cable companies channels. The competition was a little easier, but 
uh, it really was the, the high point of the network era. Now, having said that, Scott, I never was a huge fan of MASH. And I know a lot of people are be shaking their heads now, but um, yeah, so I don't miss it as much as a lot of people. I, I'm I'm glad I'm kind of glad you said that because I didn't want to bring it up first. Uh, I have I have watched or tried to watch not only the show but I've watched the movie a number of times because everyone was always the movie is the greatest thing ever and it's it's I don't know Bill it's okay it's okay it's it's yeah it's I, I that's agree, where I'll yeah. put it and and I think the series the first four or five seasons you had all those creators there great writers and the original cast. But when they killed off McLean Stevenson and they started replacing uh, various people and they brought in uh, Colonel Winchester and it just got, uh, went on too long, I thought, and I didn't really care for it as much as those early seasons. Is there anything that, now, again, I don't think anyone's ever going to get a hundred million. I don't think that if you were to have man land on Mars, you would necessarily get a hundred million people tuning in all at once now. But is there anything that could be done now with television that could draw even a relatively close to that number? Is Or, or are we so fractured with so many different things, Netflix and Disney Plus and cable and everything else, that it's just impossible? Could anything get that kind of attention? Well, I mean, you know, the Royal Funeral probably worldwide got a giant number, but, um, you know, probably here in Canada and in the United States, it would be a number that would just be okay back in the MASH era. And I think that um, that a hit on TV is actually shocking in terms of broadcast network TV. You know, four or five million people in the entire United States watching a show is now considered a hit. And... MASH would routinely do 25 million or 20 million or, you know, but 30 million some weeks. So um, things have just been, the pie has been sliced so thin now, it really would be impossible. But when we say impossible, and this was sort of what I'm struggling to ask the question properly. When we say impossible, is it truly, do you believe impossible or do you see it happening someday just when the product is just so great? Or is it even with the greatest TV show ever made, it could never do that just because of how many different play that, that not that many people are on cable now. Not everyone has Netflix. Not everyone has, it would be impossible, like literally impossible to do it. I think so. I, I, and I think it's not just that there's so much choice. That's a big part of it. You know, the, the, there used to be very little choice. But also, um, families used to watch TV together back in the MASH era. There'd be one screen in the entire house. Right. Now, you know, every kid has their own screen in their hand, and they don't watch television um, on a conventional TV screen. So it's just what they're watching isn't just all the other TV options. It's everything on YouTube. It's, It's videos. It's all kinds of Instagram or TikTok things, and it just... It's just way different. So it's so apples and oranges. I don't think anyone would ever come close again. Well, that's true. And we also, we don't count things the same, right? I mean, we don't, we, we don't, uh, if you're streaming and first of all, we don't necessarily know, they don't necessarily tell us the numbers, but if you were to put all the people streaming the crown, for example, which I know has leapt back to the top of Netflix top 10 list, right? if yeah. it, if you put all of those people who watch that together in one place, maybe you get this, but that just doesn't, that's not how we do it. 
No, and, and you wouldn't get that in in just Canada or just in in the U.S. Like the worldwide Netflix is in 120 territories or whatever it is. Uh, but um, you know, it it is even if you look at the royal funeral, um, and I've seen some overnight numbers of some of the coverage, and um, you know, the younger people who who watch it, and they're 10 percent of the audience, they watch they watch it on their mobile device. So it's just different and, and it's all fractured in many many ways all right speaking of great tv shows this this number and i almost find this hard to believe I, i'm 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 not gonna vouch for this number yet i'll let you back me on this if it's true or not the emmys were a week ago and better call saul was shut out again and according to this thing i'm reading better call saul is now the most nominated TV show in history never to have a win. 46 Emmy nominations, zero trophies. That's that's impossible. It's unfortunate. You know, I think that there's a really well-made show, Vince uh, Gilligan, who also did Breaking Bad, uh, same team made, made the, uh, you know, Better Call Saul, and it was probably TV's best drama on um, cable or specialty in the last three or four years, for sure. Uh, wonderful series, but you know it was always up against something. You know, it was always there'd be a lot of competition in that category, and uh, over the course of its six-year run, and uh, it's a shame though. In this final season, it should have been saluted. All of those actors, the two leads, my goodness, were fantastic, uh, but it just didn't turn out. Yeah, it it just it's amazing that I mean, who what was the uh, the soap actress uh, who always for a while there always lost every year? Um, oh my God, you're right. All my children. It was uh, it, the joke. Uh, the joke that she could never quite win. Uh, she lost and that, twelve times in a row and finally won on the thirteenth try. Something, uh, but here's forty six times. I mean, it's it's implausible that a great show like this that not one of them would pan out. Not one. Well, and then to the other side of it, that, you know, Schitt's Creek won nine Emmys, swept the table every category one year. So something gets hot, and it just wipes the board off, and then the other shows that are there just unfortunately get squeezed out. Um, it happens, but uh, certainly getting blanked, and that, that show deserved to win some Emmys for sure. I didn't realize this also. The next two, as far as most nominations without ever getting a win... Uh, way, way, way behind, not 46. Uh, Parks and Rec had 14, never won, 14 nominations, and The Good wow. Place had 13 and never so won, the, which just... Yeah, so those are great shows. So I'm sure uh, Better Call Saul, they could take some solace in being in good company. You think about it, Cary Grant never won an Oscar. I don't think it was ever nominated. Alfred Hitchcock never won an Oscar. Uh, you know, there's been some award uh, injustices that, in retrospect, seem ridiculous edward g robinson a lot of great actors so you know it's not always the one who should win that does win you know sometimes though i do wonder and i know that you know it's not really what it's about but i I sometimes wonder if you're the organizer of say the emmys and all the results come in and you realize that this show that's going off the air has been blank somehow again do you not throw out an honorary emmy for you know something (laughs) find something just so they get up on stage well, you notice in the in the Academy Awards and the different like Canada's uh, award shows, um, there's usually a People's Choice category now uh, for the Canadian Screen Awards, and that's something that's trying to you know address that. But you know, 
the Royal Canadian Air Force never won um, a, a Gemini, or, or you know, there's been a lot of great shows here that people loved and watched and uh, were blank because in Canada the reward is viewers. You know, so that's if you could be on the air for 18 seasons or whatever it was for Air Force, that's your reward. Yeah, it's, it, it is amazing. And and you do wonder also, and we're going to move along here, but you do wonder what the, I mean, I suppose if it's the same voters year after year, their same taste may explain part of this. May, maybe the folks who voted for this just didn't get Better Call Saul. And so, you know, maybe, maybe a different group of voters might have, they would have won 43 of the 46. Who knows? It's just, it, you don't know. On, you know, being on AMC, it may be just a, bit off the radar it's not as red hot as it once was i think even mad men you know poor um some of the leads on that show should have won but they had the unfortunate misfortune to be opposite the sopranos for part of their run so it's just you look at who they're against and sometimes it, it seems more understandable but it is a shame with uh better call song all right so now we get into we go from there into what i think is one of the most interesting slash hilarious slash I don't know what to do with it stories that's going on right now. And that is that Disney is coming out, they're coming out with all these live action versions of their movies, uh, which frankly I find amazing that after all these years, Disney and Pixar can't come up with unique ideas. They got to go back to the well and redo what they've already done. doesn't make any sense to me that those companies couldn't come up with something new. But they're coming out, so we've got a new Little Mermaid coming out where the Little Mermaid is a black actress, and we've got a Snow White apparently coming out where the actress by skin tone is not Snow White. And some people are really upset about this, saying, what are you doing? Why do you have to tinker? Do you think that Disney, and I mean, I know you don't know, but do you think that Disney is truly doing this to broaden the horizons and give little black girls someone to look at on the screen that looks like them because politically and socially it's a progressive thing to do or do you think they're doing it because darn it we know if we do this we're going to get all kinds of people yelling and screaming online and you can't get more publicity to bring more people into the theaters than this i think all of those reasons scott but i mean i i do think that for 70 years disney was a very white world and so you know you have to it on the other look at it another way like it was almost um you know it, 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 there were there were no black characters uh, there was sleepy doc and dopey and you know there, everything was white and so that they had to address it and, and i think actually it's smart why remake everything if you're just going to do it the same so uh the little mermaid being black why not you know i mean uh, i think my question is more this, though. You've got these brilliantly animated masterpieces that were done by hand in the 30s and 40s and 50s and just stunning films. And I don't understand why Pinocchio needs to be remade at all. Like, it's just perfect. Like uh, twice or know. three times. But Yeah, exactly. And there's a, a Guillermo del Toro is coming out with another version of Pinocchio, an animated one, uh, that's coming out later this year. So... Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I can see me making the nutty professor with Eddie Murphy. Why not? But, uh, some of these, these animated classics, uh, you know, and you need to remake Dumbo. I don't think so. Well, again, it, like, it, it stuns me that a company like Disney that for as long as I can remember was the peak of creativity 
is doing it this way as opposed to coming out with new movies that would be a brand new audience that they've reached the point where they've just got to go and go back into what they know is going to work. That, that amazes me. It's all about uh, brands that cut through the clutter and they just feel that uh, everyone's heard of Pinocchio or the little mermaid. And so you'll take the grandchildren to see the new one because you took your kids or your kids will, you know, it's just, that is what they're playing on that. uh, It's, it's just, if you have a new story, um, people don't know what that is. And so that's why everything is rebooted and remade. And yeah, but shouldn't the, Disney logo itself just have enough cachet that if the Disney logo pops up, people are going to say, I got to take the kids to that without having to do that. I hear what you're saying. You, you know, people, it'd be nice to have some new stories to tell. And not just with Disney and kids' movies, but with adult movies. You know, like uh, we've all sort of survived this pandemic and not gone into movie theaters. But part of that was also if you were a certain age, if you didn't like superheroes, you weren't interested in going back to the movies anyway. So it would be nice to have new romantic comedies, say, that uh, people might be interested in. And who knows? There have been a couple this year at TIFF that seem to address that. And uh, fingers crossed there'll be more. All right. Let me get you in some trouble here, Bill, just as we, uh, with the minutes we have left. So, uh, I mean, I, I'm in agreement with the concept that you just threw out there that, look, The Little Mermaid, um, I don't believe this is a documentary. <laughs> so, in other words, if you want the mermaid to be white or black or Asian or who cares, it's a fictional story. That's okay. Do with it what you want. What about, though, we have seen in recent years where more more close to history, a little more realistic movies, less fictional, more non-fictional, have tried to introduce characters that aren't fitting with what you would have seen at that time. And I know that we that may mean that we, if you didn't, that would be a very white cast. But if you also say, well, in that time, at that place, that would have been a lot of white people. What about when it's a non-fictional thing and doing it? Do we, do we again say, who cares? It's just a movie or should we be more saying, don't fiddle around with it as much? I, I hear what you're saying this time, Scott. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm trying to remember the name of, there's a TV series that was um, um, totally integrated and it was a historical setting going back 400 years that would not have been integrated. Um and it's just escaped my mind, but it's certainly an example of what you're saying. And I think that's where, yeah, you sort of, you know, anytime you're introducing characters, you're sort of blending truth and fiction, I guess, as long as you declare it. Now, you know, the Elvis movie was just out and you've got Tom Hanks playing Elvis's manager and he kind of took over that movie, but it just seemed to obscure the story of Elvis. So for some of us who lived it or know it, yeah, you start to question the, the the directors, the producers, the writers. Why is the storytelling being tilted a certain way? And yeah, I think that's a, it's a great question. It's a, it's yeah. a great question because I came home, I saw Elvis a couple of weeks ago. They had a $3 movie night across Canada and I decided that was my, that was my cue because I'm not cheap. Right. Uh, and I went and saw it and I came home and went on Google and looked up about four things that happened in that movie that I thought, did that really happen? And of course, none of them happened there was there was great amounts of poetic license taken in that movie great yeah. amounts great you movie you don't need to it this is the story of elvis just tell the story or i i you know what i scott my reaction was i wanted to watch 
Elvis 68, the comeback special. I wanted to see the real thing. Uh, it made me want to return to what the real thing was. A documentary would have been perfect, but, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, because I didn't, I mean, the, the one of the ones that comes to mind right away, we got to run here. One of the ones that comes to mind was when he fired, now, I, spoiler alert, I guess, is it too early? Can I say this? I don't know. Spoiler alert. All right, I'll throw that out there. So plug your ears and go la, 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 la for the next 20 seconds if you're <laughs> going to go see the movie. When he fired Colonel Tom on stage. And I'm thinking, right. I don't remember ever hearing about that. Right. And he did fire him, but he did it behind the scenes. And I'm thinking, would it have been less dramatic, really, if you had just followed? I, I don't understand why those kind of things needed to be done, but, you know, well, it was still a pretty good Ricardo's, movie. Well, uh, Scott, that, that, that yes. movie about uh, Desi and Lucy, Aaron Sorkin took, you know, incredible liberties there. He, he rolled three big crises over three years into one week. And so it's all storytelling and trying to hype the, uh, you know, the danger. But I think that's too much. You don't need to do that. The truth generally is just as fascinating. Uh, you can see Bill Breu's stuff. He writes great stuff about television. His podcasts are excellent. You can go to that Michael Landon one if you want. There's one up there about the 1972 series, all kinds of stuff. Uh, Breu, B-R-I-O-U-X dot TV. Go look it up. Bill, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure anytime, Scott. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.